If you have a Bible, uh, let's pick up in James chapter 3. Uh, James has been the book that we're studying through on these Sunday mornings. Just uh, want to go on and say it's the book we're going to be studying on Sunday mornings. And for the rest of August, we're going to study it Sunday mornings and Sunday evening. So we're going to have a sort of a double header each Sunday that's left here in August the 16th, the 23rd, and August the 30th. We're going to study through and conclude James the last Sunday in, in August. And so, um, so we're just going to double down here on James. And more importantly, we pray that the Word of God sort of double downs on us. So James chapter 3, we'll read verses 1 through uh, 12 as our text this morning. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also, though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Let's pray together that we'll allow the Lord to speak to us through his word this morning. Father, no one who carefully reads and thinks about these words can come to any conclusion other than the words we use are incredibly important. We live in a day and an age when many people are careless with their words. And so, Father, we pray that your word, the living word, the word of God is alive and active among us that you give us much grace as we study your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, yesterday at our house, we celebrated our uh, thirdborn, our, our little girl Priscilla's fifth birthday. And so I wanted to share a couple of stories. Yeah, I, I'm by nature someone who gets sort of emotional and nostalgic about times and dates. And so I was thinking about her birth and two stories I want to share with you that sort of underline the importance of Words. When, when we found out we were expecting Priscilla, we already had two children, a girl, Mary Claire, and then a boy, Abel. So, so we sort of had a child, not sort of, we obviously really did have a child of, of both genders. 
So when we found out we were having a third, Julie and I had discussed and we thought we're going to do this the old-fashioned way. We're going to not find out the gender of our child until the day arrives. And so we went to the ultrasound, and, and I'm, I don't know what the percentage is. I, I'm guessing well over 90% of people who go to the ultrasound tell me if it's a boy or a girl. In fact, that's the main news that we want to hear. And so we went in and said, we don't want to know. And so the, the gracious and kind lady who was conducting the ultrasound, she sat us down and kind of gave us a, a talk of how this was going to work. Now, we understand she's reading through our papers, and somewhere they'd mark down, you know, in big, bold letters, they don't want to know, right, if it's a boy or a girl. And so she begins to give us this this spiel about how she's going to put the child on the screen and she's going to point to things and she says, I'm going to use the pronoun he. But that doesn't mean the child's a boy. It's just we've got to use some sort of word. And so I'm going to point to his head and I'll say it's his head. That doesn't mean it's a boy. And so we, I said, we got it. She says, do you understand? I'm saying he, but that doesn't mean it's a boy. I said, I think we got it. Julie, you got it. I got it. We got it. So she turns the ultrasound on and then we see the child, beautiful, as the scripture says that God knits together a child in the mother's womb, and we're seeing the child. And here's the first words out of her mouth. First words. Here you'll see her foot. (laughs) And and Julie and I kind of look at each other and look back at the screen, and we can see by her response, she doesn't say this out loud, but her facial expression was, oops, right? And so she quickly moves on to another thing, and we kind of look at each other. We walk out saying, um, did you hear? Yeah, I heard. And so we kind of pretended that we didn't hear and said, maybe it's still, but obviously the child's born and it's, and it's a girl, right? Words, words, even small, just a small word, like her, just one little word is tremendously informative. Is it not? Words inform. Then the second component of this was that I sort of was fostering these uh, hopes and dreams that I'd sort of do like the old, old days. And I'd be able to, once the day arrived, be able to share with everybody what uh, the child was, right? And it's a girl, and I had this view, you know, you've seen perhaps on television or otherwise, or you've been there, the dad bursts through the doors and walks in and announces it, and everybody celebrates. So that's kind of what I had in, my, in, in mind, and then this is how it actually played out. We, we, uh, we had the precious girl born August the 15th, 2010, and um, I'm not going to name any names. Some relatives came and, and visited and, and so, so, so then I had this great, I was going to go share with everybody. Here's what happened every case. Hey, hey, did you hear? Yeah, we know it's a girl. We saw it on Facebook. Wait, 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 what? <laughs> no, no, I wanted to share all this news. And it's like every, everybody kind of, all of our friends already, already knew. So, so one, words are informative. And then two, we can all agree, particularly in these days, words travel fast. Words spread quickly. Here, one of the, one of the, um, uh, visual images that James uses is that words are like a wildfire, right? That's what he's getting at. Man, word travels fast. And so let's walk through James chapter 3. So here's sort of a neutral statement that we want to say very loud and clear because it's what God's word is saying. The tongue is powerful. Tongue's powerful. Now, a step beyond that, will say that power can be used for good or for evil. Now, I know we're saying very simple elementary principles, but they're important for us to be reminded of. So on the front end, here's the question that we'd ask of each of us and what God's word's asking of each of us. The way that we use our own tongues, the way that we use our own words in your life right now, are you using it for good or for evil? Now, James begins by saying, not many of you should become 
teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Now, if you remember the context, James is writing a group of believers who've been spread out. They've been dispersed because of severe persecution that broke out after Stephen, who used his words very wisely. Stephen stood and chose to use his words to proclaim the gospel. The result of that was that he was martyred, he was murdered, he was stoned to death, and then a severe, the Bible says, persecution broke out against the believers in Jerusalem so that they were spread out. Now, the apostles uh, stayed in Jerusalem, but, the, but the, many of the believers were uh, spread out and dispersed because of persecution. So he says, not many of you, you remember, that, that they're, they're disconnected now from their teachers. Here are the men who've been teaching them the word, now they've been dispersed, and so he's just giving a warning, not many of you should become Teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. I have to uh, have to be honest with you about every Sunday when I sit there and the choir is singing, this verse comes to my mind. This verse comes to my mind because this is a verse for for me. I'm I'm teaching. I'm standing before all of you this, this morning. I've opened up God's word and I'm going to be judged with greater strictness and I'm going to be judged about what I'm speaking to you. And I, and I think I'm judged on the content of what I say publicly and then the character that I have privately. I, I think that's what the scripture would testify to. Do I preach the gospel? Do I preach what this word says? Now, oftentimes we, we, we uh, misappropriate how we should judge teaching. I, uh, and, and by the way, most every time the Bible talks about teaching, it talks about judgment. You remember Paul says I, to Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ and by his appearing, who is to judge the living and the dead, preach the word in season and out of season. So if you're a Sunday school teacher, my fellow pastors, if you teach children the, the Bible, just know the scripture bears witness that we're going to be judged for what we say. I'm going to read you a series of verses. You just listen to them and just get a sense of how seriously and soberly the Lord takes the words that we use. Proverbs 18:21. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Death and life. Some of us some of us have experienced both of those. Well, I think most all of us have experienced both. Have you ever just been devastated by somebody's words? Oh, you'll never amount to anything. You're, you'll never change. You're just like your dad, or you're just like your mom, or so on. So, so some death and life are in the power of the tongue. So hold on to that. So negative things, but also the Bible says life is in the power of the tongue. You, you probably underestimate the potential to bring life to the people around you through your tongue. Most husbands underestimate the life that they can bring to their wives through the power of their tongue. Most parents underestimate the life that they can bring to their children, grandparents to their grandchildren. Proverbs 13, 18, there is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts. Rash words. Remember, James has already said, be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. This proverb is talk, talking about someone who doesn't obey that. They're, they're rash to speak. They don't think before they speak. They're not quick to listen. They're quick to become angry. Th- there's one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise 
brings healing. This is another example of what the Bible says. Yes, you can do terrible, destructive things with your tongue. But on the other hand, you can bring life. the, The tongue of the wise brings healing. Let the words of my mouth, Psalm 19, 14. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Do you want to know what a man or a woman thinks about, what they meditate on, what they dwell on in their heart? Just listen to their words. Uh, the scripture continues. Ephesians four twenty nine. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. So there's a way that we should not speak, no corrupting talk. And, and yet, what I want you to really get this morning is there's also a way that we should speak. A lot of times when we talk about our words, we say, here's the way you shouldn't speak. But the Bible is encouraging us that, yes, there's a way you should not speak, but there's also a way that you that you should speak. Truthful lips endure forever, Proverbs twelve nineteen. but a lying tongue is but for a moment. Words can cause death. Words can give life. I'll give you one more brief story from Priscilla's birth. I'm sorry, I've been a little bit um, nostalgic, as I was saying. Um, when, when we knew it was a girl and we knew Mary Clara had a sister, that was big news. And so I had the privilege of going and picking up Mary Clara, uh, the, uh, I think it was the day after Priscilla was born, and taking her to see her sister. Got the video camera out, got it all set up, and Pris- uh, Mary Clara walks in, big smile on her face. And then she's, we got all the pictures, you know, a big sister holding little sister. And it was a great time. And then I'm and then, um, driving Mary Clara home. So we've, we've left the hospital and, and I've got my rear view mirror set so I can see her face because I'm just basking in all this glorious new fatherhood stuff and all oh, my girls, they're so precious. I'll fight the world for these girls. Oh Lord, praying for them. And, but, but then I look in the rear view mirror and I can tell that uh, Mary Clara's got this sort of perplexed look on her face. And so I said, um, uh, Mary Clara, is there anything wrong? Are, are, are you thinking about something you want to talk to daddy about? And she kind of bit her lip and she said, well... Yes, And I said, well, 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 what is it? And then in this little, small, little five-year-old girl voice, she said, Daddy, how do you know Priscilla's a girl? <laughs> I said, that's a, that's a good question, sweetheart. <laughs> and, and then you ever pull this as a, as a parent? You just have to trust what Daddy says, you know. You just have to. So, so I had shared that uh, I, I had shared that story with Julie when I got back to the hospital. So the next time Mary Clara came, put a big bow in Priscilla's head, and that seemed to resolve all the uh, all, all all of the concerns, right? How do you know? Now we we know we know without going into great detail. We know there's clear markers of boys and, and girls, and, and here's here's one thing I think James is getting at. How do you know? How do you know a person is a Christian, right? How, how do you really know? How, how, how do you, how, how can you tell? And James has given us several markers, right? Here, here's one marker. He started with this. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials and tribulations of many kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Uh, you know a Christian, you know someone who really believes in Jesus because they approach the trials and the tribulations, not with a sort of woe is me, Eeyore theology, but they approach saying, oh, Christ for the joy set before him endured the cross despising his shame. And they understand as these people do, you remember they're, they're spread out because of persecution. And the Bible says as they're spread out because of persecution, they don't go around feeling sorry for themselves. The first city they get to a Samaritan village, a, a Samaritan village, meaning a, a group of people that are pro pretty hardened to Jewish people and and then the gospel that's going forth 
the Bible says that the gospel goes forth in great power in that Samaritan village. And you were left answering the question, how did that happen? Because remember, they left all their teachers back in Jerusalem. Here's how it most likely happened, because here's a group of people who've lost everything, and yet they still have the joy of the Lord. And how's the gospel going to go forth in great power in Rocky Mount? It's probably most likely going to go because people who endure great suffering and hardship still count it all joy. How else do you know a Christian is really a follower of Jesus? How they handle temptation. That's also what he speaks about. And we won't recap all of the book of James, but here's another clear indicator that someone really is the real thing. A follower of Jesus is how they use their words. Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Psalm 141, verse 3. 1 John 5, 19. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one who was a murderer from the beginning and the father of lies. How do you tell a lie? By by speaking. Well, it says here, for we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man. Man. So, so first of all, let's look here as we continue to read. Uh, number one, first point, is the difficulty of taming the tongue. The difficulty of taming the tongue. Able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. One, we'll just, we'll just readily admit this, there's difficulty in taming the tongue. Now you don't have to raise your hands this morning, but just ask the question, is there anybody among us who has a hard time taming your tongue? Uh, James says that we, we've trained all sorts of animals and beasts, right? For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed, and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. That's an interesting statement, isn't it? Do you know what the Bible just told you? You cannot tame your tongue. So the application for this morning's sermon is not, hey, go out and just kind of watch your words a little bit better, right? The Bible just said you can't do it. You can't do it. Now, that's not the same as making the statement, it cannot be done. Can we agree on that, right? You can't do it, but that doesn't mean it cannot be done. What it does mean is somebody else has to do it. And you already know where we're heading. Who is that somebody else? That somebody else is the Holy Spirit of the living God who comes to reside in your heart the moment that you're saved. Listen to this verse, Ephesians chapter 1. You, when you heard the gospel of your salvation and believed it, you hear it? Not just heard the gospel, but you heard it and you believed it. We're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. So if you've heard the gospel, you've believed it, you've got the Holy Spirit residing in you. And the Holy Spirit is able to tame the tongue. But here I want to make an important point, because oftentimes we talk about taming the tongue. We used this illustration a couple of weeks ago, because this isn't the first time James has talked about words, is it? This is our second sermon on this subject matter because James revisits it. And he uses the example of a, of a bridle in the mouth of a horse, right? Now, we know if a horse gets running away and, you know, uh, we, 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 you pull on the bit, right? So the, and we, whoa, horse, right? So the horse will stop. But I can tell you this. You don't put a, a bit in the mouth of a horse just so it stands there and never goes anywhere. Yeah, you, have, you, you pull on it. But you also put a bit in the mouth of a horse so that you can direct it 
where to go. Application for us is the, the Lord is concerned about the ways you would not use your tongue. No corrupting talk come out of your mouth. But also the Lord is concerned in how you are to use your tongue, right? In, in just a moment, we're going to turn to the Gospels, and I think there's a great living picture of all these truths we're learning here in James. But, 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 uh, but secondly, not only is there difficulty in taming the tongue, but James also talks about the disproportionate power of the tongue. Now, if you've ever watched... Um, you know, like a, like a, you know, a, a Mr. Universe competition. They're always showing off like their biceps, right? No, nobody goes out there and shows off their tongue, right? I mean, you talk about a strong person and here's how ripped and cut I am. Uh, and, and, but, but James is saying, James is saying the mightiest member that we've got is our tongue. Although it's so small, right? And, and then he uses this example of a, even in Paul's day, these huge ships right out in the sea and then the waves or the winds come rather and they start in the sail and, and the whole ship is piloted by a little bitty rudder. On, on occasion, I watch a show called uh, Deadliest Catch and I was watching it not long ago and uh, uh, this bad storm had come up. Waves, I mean, these huge waves. They, they'd taken all the guys that were working on the deck and they brought them in. Um, this ice pack is coming down. I mean, this is like, I'm sitting there watching. This is worst case scenario. This is just when you pack up and go home. Isn't that what you're supposed to do? But these guys still trying to get their, their jobs done. And so the captain's sitting there and all of a sudden these alarms start going off. And, and, and the captain, it's like the, his, his whole face drains of color. He goes as white as a, as a sheet. And he turns to the other guy and says, I've lost steering and then about that time, the, the camera pans out to the boat, and it's just, I mean, you can see it. I mean, it's just getting turned away. I mean, uh, if something's not done, this boat is in danger of, of sinking. And so he races. I mean, it's not something, oh, we'll do this tomorrow. I mean, he immediately vacates the chair, runs downstairs, finds the problem, starts working on it. Why? Because that captain knows well enough that without steering, we're going under. And that's what James is talking about. What steers you? Is this right here? Your tongue. And there's so many people who've made shipwreck of their lives and who've made shipwreck of other people's lives because of this tongue right here. Sword thrusts, hurtful words, the disproportionate power of the tongue. Tongues like the rudder in a, in a boat. And so, so not only is there a disproportionate power of the tongue. There's the destruction caused by the tongue. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on the fire, setting on fire rather the entire course of life and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird and reptile, as we've said, and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. My brothers, these things ought not to be. Just listen to these descriptive terms about the, about the tongue. A world of unrighteousness, restless evil, full of deadly poison. The destructive power of the tongue. And one more characteristic is the deadly, what we call the deadly inconsistency of the tongue. That's the point he makes next. With it, we bless our Lord and Father. 
And with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. Have you ever done that? Use the same, same tongue to, to bless the Lord, to pray to the Lord, and then in the same day, if not the same hour, if not moment after, use that very same tongue to, to curse people who are made in the image in the image of God, the deadly inconsistency that plagues the tongue. Now, th- those are a few characteristics that James lists. What I want us to do now is kind of hold our spot here in James, and then I want us to turn back to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 7. Now, some of you were with me a couple of Wednesday nights ago when we looked at this text, but I want to bring this text as a living picture of the principles that James is talking about. Because I think we can all agree, okay, the, the, the destructive power of the tongue, the deadly inconsistency of the tongue, we get it. With our tongue, we bless and we curse. But here, as so often is the case, Jesus does something in, in sort of the physical world that instructs us about spiritual truth. We're going to meet somebody in the Gospel of Mark who has difficulty speaking. And there's a particular reason he's got difficulty speaking. So I want us to walk through this and use this as a living picture of what Jesus, or what Jesus would have us know, and then what James is, is getting at, a way that we should not speak, and then a way that we should speak. So we'll look at Mark chapter 7, verses 31 through 37, and uh, there's a little bit of a riddle that goes on in this text. Is Here's a man who's uh, unable to speak, but told to speak, and then it's the same man is able to speak, but told not to speak. I don't know if that made any sense, but you'll see it here. Mark chapter 7, verse 31. Then he, that he is Jesus, returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. What you need to know from that is, uh, is most importantly, Jesus is in Gentile territory. Okay? He's not in the Jewish region. He's in a Gentile region. He's making a trip around the Sea of Galilee to this region called the Decapolis. Uh, it's called the Decapolis because there's these 10 villages in the area. It's not too, too much unlike how we call Raleigh, Durham, Chapel Hill. What? We call it the? All right, you're with me. The triangle because there's three cities. Well, they had not three. They had 10. So it's the Decapolis. Jesus is there. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. So he's unable to, to speak clearly. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. They brought to a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. I want you to just think for a moment how difficult life would have been for this man in those days. There's no sign language. Uh, the, 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 there's no closed caption, you know, obviously. In those days, when you could not hear and correspondingly could not speak well, I think we all understand the correlation between not being able to hear very well and not being able to, to, to speak, how those two things go together. And we'll tie them spiritually together in just, in just a moment because I think that's the whole point of this, of this, of this text. Uh, many people in, uh, in those days, particularly in a Greek city like this, although the Jewish understanding wasn't much different they they, they thought people who had these ailments were cursed by the gods that they had done something wrong that that they were marked by the gods as as cursed and not only that very frequently they they were thought to be um trying to think of the polite way to say this um unintelligent lacking in ability to think that's why they can't speak they can't their their speech is so strange because they're not able to think very well and so they're just outcasts 
Just put them to the side. We don't really know what to do with them. They can't hear. They can't speak. And can you imagine how lonely that life would be? Nobody really can speak to you. You can't really speak to someone. So you're sort of trapped within your own self, within your own mind. And my assumption would be that some of the thoughts that might enter your mind is, is, is my life valuable? What's wrong with me? And, and if there's a God, does he care at all? So Jesus is about to answer those two questions, friends, by the way. Is my life valuable and does, and does God care at all? So, so, so they bring this man who's having these difficulties and they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately. I, I want us to just pay attention uh, to each action Jesus performs in this, in this man's life. So, so the Bible says that he took him away from the crowd Privately, Can you imagine, can you imagine having Jesus all to yourself? What's Jesus doing here? Now, very likely this man who's endured this hardship in his life has been bullied. He's been, uh, he's not heard perhaps all of the insults that have been uttered to him. But, but, but I'm, I'm confident that he got the gist of it by reading people's body languages and, and whatever crude sign language there was to, to tell this man that his life was... Uh, uh, cursed by God. And Jesus says he, he takes him aside privately. What's Jesus doing? He's giving him dignity. He's giving him honor. He's giving him res- respect, saying you're a valuable person. You're not to be discarded. You're, you're valuable. And, G- and the Bible says Jesus took him aside privately. Um, but by the way, I want to say before we move on, that Jesus highly values your life too. Now it might be, it might be that somebody sometime, somewhere, either in what they said or by their actions made you feel like your life's not valuable. But I want to say very clearly that Jesus values your life so much that he did not just come to do physical miracles. He came to go to Calvary and be crucified to pay the penalty of your sin. There's no way that God could demonstrate how he values your life greater than what he has done in Christ Jesus. Jesus takes them away privately and put his fingers into his ears. Now, they didn't have sign language in those days, but I think this is what Jesus is doing. He's telling the man, he's telling the man, I know what your issue is. You're not... You're not um, an imbecile. You're not crazy. You're not a maniac. It's as simple as this. You cannot hear. And Jesus is telling him, he's sharing with him, I know what the issue is. I know what the issue is. See, Jesus is not some far removed in the heavens, detached deity. He's drawn near to us. He's a man acquainted with grief. He, 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 he says, your hearing's off, right? You can't, you can't hear. And he put his, and after spitting, he says he touches his tongue. He's saying you can't speak well because you cannot hear clearly. And looking up to heaven, notice this. The Bible says he sighed. You know what's often true is anybody who has a deficiency in one of their physical senses often is highly attuned in the other physical senses that they do have. 
And so here's a man who can't hear, he can't speak, but he can see just fine. And I think Jesus is taking him aside privately. Jesus himself is standing there. He's looking up to heaven. He's, he's, giving, he's giving an indication to this guy that the power that's about to heal you, it's not a farce. It's not some strange magic trip. This, this healing comes from power from on high. This healing comes from heaven. So there's power coming and there's also empathy that's present. I'm sighing because Jesus is saying, I, your grief how hard it's been, what you've been through. He, he sighs. And he said to him, this is interesting, Jesus, in order to heal him, what's he do? Uses words. He speaks. It, it causes us to think back to Genesis 1. In the beginning, God said, let there be light. Your words are important to God's because God's words are important to God. Looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, that is, be opened. His ears, notice the order, notice the order. His ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And the day you heard the gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promise of Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our possession until we acquire possession of it. Your tongue will never be tamed until first your hearing is healed. Specifically, that you have heard the gospel. So what is the gospel? Not many of you should become teachers because teachers will be strictly judged. I'm a teacher of the gospel, so I want to be someone having heard the gospel and believed it, speaks it clearly. So let me take two minutes to give a clear, prayerfully, by God's grace, clear gospel proclamation so you can see in your own heart or mind, have I heard this clearly? The easiest way that I've learned over the years to share the gospel is there's five things. And this might be why God's given you five fingers. So you remember this this in a very simple way. We share the gospel. And and by the way, if you're going to be someone who speaks the gospel to other people, five things you want to share. Number one is the character of God. God's holy. God's just. And God's the creator of all things. You didn't just get here. You're not just showing up here on Sunday, August 16th, 2015, because of a long series of happenstances and chances. No, you were made in the image of God. You're made in the image of God. You're, You're not some some phenomenon from a long billion year process of happenstances. You're made in his image and God is just and he's holy and he's righteous. He's perfect. He's pure. He's the creator of all things. One, the character of God. Do you be heard of who he is? He's the creator and sustainer of all things. One, God is holy. Secondly, you have to understand that men and women are sinful. We're not righteous. We're not just. We're not holy. Have you ever been around a little child? Now, I've, I've told you a little bit about my sweet children being born, but I've got to tell you this. They came fully equipped to sin. We didn't have to read them a Barney book. We didn't have to teach them for, through Sesame Street to be selfish, to be sinful, to be jealous, to be self-centered, to, to, to hit. No, you don't have to teach children to do that. You have to teach them not to do those things, right? Don't do this. And it's not just children. It's us, too. Apart from God, Paul says, no good thing dwells in us. Now, here's two simple points, two simple points. God's holy, man is sinful. 
Most people in the world don't believe those things. In fact, most all other religions are based in not believing those things. Either it will say, God, can you stop being so holy? Or man, can you stop being so simple? You can't even tame your tongue, friend, right? No, we don't have, we don't have any hope in and of ourselves. So one, God's holy. Two, men and women are sinful. I mean, you can try as many times as you want to pick yourself up off by your bootstraps and try harder and do more and try harder and do more. You're saved, help me church, by grace, through faith, unto works. God's not up in the heavens in his holiness and righteousness saying, I'm waiting for you to get your act together so I can do something for you. No, no. He knows. He knows all things and in particular he knows that we're sinful. One, God is holy. Two, human beings are sinful. Three, Jesus Christ is sufficient. He's fully man. He's fully God. That's who Jesus is, is that God knew. God knew. There's no way that these sinful people are going to become holy and make their way back to me. So I, who am holy, have to become like one of them. I'm going to take on their own nature. But Jesus, Jesus is distinct from us. And that while he's God come in the flesh, he doesn't sin. He never sins. He's perfect. And he goes to the cross because us being sinful... Owe a debt to God, a debt that we'll pay ourselves if we don't allow Jesus in his, what the Bible calls a substitutionary atoning sacrifice. He goes to the cross because God's not going to compromise his holiness. We can't change our sinfulness. Jesus, who is holy, says, I'll take their sin. The Bible puts it this way. He, Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin in order that we might become the righteousness of God. His death on the cross is sufficient. You hear me? It's sufficient. You don't need to add anything to it, and you can't take anything away from it. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, so that whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. God demonstrated his love for us, and while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I believe that literally happened. Jesus is God come in the flesh, died on the cross for our sins. The holiness of God, the sinfulness of man, the sufficiency of Christ, Number four, the necessity of faith. The necessity of faith. You have to believe on the Lord Jesus. You believe he took your place. That that it's not some vague and some sort of weird nebulous spiritual thing that, that you believe he was crucified and on the third day was raised again. Have you ever believed on the Lord Jesus Christ? The character and the holiness of God, the sinfulness of man, sufficiency of Christ, the necessity of faith, And last thing, the urgency of eternity. James will talk about this in a few chapters. Don't boast about tomorrow. You have no idea what's going to happen tomorrow. I've done plenty of funerals for people who had no idea I was going to be doing their funeral on the day that I did their funeral. No idea. You don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Now, now, after your little bitty heart stops beating, you'll give an account to the Lord. You'll stand before him. Not just teachers, everybody will stand before him. And here's what matters in that moment. Did you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ? Did you believe that God's holy? I'm sinful. I can't can't make my way on my own back to God, but God came to me. And he preached that from the beginning, from the fall. Genesis 3, he's coming, he's coming, he's coming. John the Baptist said, he's here, the Lamb of God, who does what? Who takes away the sin of the world. His ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke 
plainly. Now look, this is something interesting that happens, and I think it'll inform us. Jesus charged them to tell... This is interesting. You would, you would, you would have thought Jesus charged them to tell everybody, right? Isn't that what you think would happen? Verse 36. This man who couldn't hear, couldn't speak, Jesus has completely transformed him. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed him. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Now, the interesting thing here is that this isn't the one time Jesus does this. You can go home and you can open up your Bible to Mark and you'll note that almost every time Jesus heals somebody physically in these early chapters of Mark, he's always telling them, no, don't go tell anybody about this. He heals Jairus' daughter, raises Jairus' daughter from the dead, and he says he charged them not to tell anyone about this. He heals a blind man. He tells the blind man, don't even go into the village. He, hear, he, he heals a lame man. And he says, don't tell anybody about this. Now, here's a question that I have, and you probably have it too, right? Why? Why is Jesus telling these people that he heals, don't go tell anybody about this? Turn with me to Luke chapter 9. When you turn to Luke chapter 9, I know you're going to a different book of the Bible, but you're going to the same period of time in Mark 7, okay? So it's the same period of time in Luke 9. I think we'll get an understanding of why Jesus is telling all these people, don't go speak, don't go speak, don't go speak. Luke 9, 18. Now, it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has arisen. Quick time out. Are you starting to pick up on why Jesus was saying, don't go tell people about these things? Why? Because they did not have the full picture yet, right? So they're going out telling, oh man, this man can heal. This man has power to heal. They marveled saying, he does all things well. He even makes the deaf to hear. He is amazing. Who is he? I think he might be one of the prophets from of old. No, he's not one of the prophets from of old. He's God come in the flesh. He healed a blind man. Who is he? He's Elijah. No, no, he's not Elijah. He's he's John the Baptist. Oh, John the Baptist, Jesus himself says, is the greatest man ever born of woman, but he's not John the Baptist. He's the Lamb of God that John the Baptist pointed at and said, here comes a man, and notice John's words. Here's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Then he said to them, who do you say that I am? Gotta love Peter. Always quick to answer. Sometimes right, sometimes wrong. So this time right. Peter answered, the Christ of God. Now I want you to notice this. As soon as those words come out of Peter's mouth, you're the Christ of God. Notice what Jesus' emphasis is. And he strictly charged and commanded them to to tell this to no one. Well, here we go again. This is a strange command. Saying, the Son of Man 
must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Now notice down back, uh, go, go a little bit further, Luke chapter 9, verse 43. They were all astonished at the majesty of God. He'd done another physical miracle. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. They marveled and said, he does all things well. He even makes the deaf to hear again. Now here's why Jesus was saying, please don't go tell anybody about this. Please don't go tell anybody about this. I healed you because I love you. I, I'm compassionate towards you. I'm powerful. But, but my physical healing of you is, is actually just a picture of something far, far greater. Question, did, does the deaf man still die? He got his hearing and ability to speak, but he's still got a big problem. Death's coming. Jairus' daughter, 12 years old, brought from death to life. Glorious. Hallelujah. Praise God Almighty. She still died. Lazarus. Lazarus, come forth. Amazing. But do you see, all of these physical miracles are simply visual object lessons to teach people who have no spiritual discernment spiritual truth. Does that make sense? Jesus was speaking and teaching them in a way that they could understand, which is the hallmark of a great teacher, by the way. Now, you say, oh man, I can't believe they were that way back then. It's no different today. It's no different today. Question. It's hypothetical. We've used it a couple Wednesday nights. If, hypothetically, there was a whole lot of physical healing going on in this sanctuary this morning. I mean, the, the lame were walking, Right? The, the blind could see again. The deaf could hear again. And word spread out all over Rocky Mount that, man, if you come to that sanctuary, something's going on there that we've never seen before. How many people do you think would come to the sanctuary for that service? Well, you'd have to get here early, right? You'd have to show up early, get a park, get here. You know, and the place would be packed. Probably the fire chief would start getting nervous because, man, they've got more people in there than they can hold. Now, question if, if we said we're going to get together and worship the living God in spirit and truth and we're going to open up his word and we're going to proclaim the gospel, you see what I'm saying? That's what we are doing. But we, I mean, we got room for some more people in here, right? Because here's a built-in deficiency with human beings. We always, because of our sin nature, prioritize the physical and the temporary above the spiritual and the eternal. Now, now here's, here's the irony. Jesus told those people in that segment of time, don't go out and share because you don't have the full picture. Now, the full picture is the Son of Man's going to Jerusalem. He's going to be crucified for sin. That's what I've come for. All these miracles leading up to that are just pictures of what I'm going to do at, at Calvary. And because they didn't have the whole picture, because they're going around saying he's John the Baptist or he's Elijah or one of the great prophets, he said, please, please don't go. Even to the apostles, he said, go to Jerusalem and stay there until the Holy Spirit comes. Then you will be my witnesses, right? In Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And isn't this interesting? When the Holy Spirit comes down on them, do you remember what the Bible says the Holy Spirit kind of visually looked like? It looked like tongues of fire, right? A, a tongue 
a fire comes down. And I think it's one of the last physical, visual images God blesses them with because as soon as the Holy Spirit comes and then when you heard the gospel of truth, uh, uh, gospel of your salvation, and believed it, we're sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. He's coming, tongue of fire. Now he's here. Guess what? Now that he's here, you, you don't need the lesser, the lesser temporary object lessons because now you've got the Holy Spirit inside of you. Now go back. Let's end where we started. James chapter 2. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ship also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs them. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. He goes on here in verse 10. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers... These things ought not to be so.